Ugh. All right, let's do it. Hello, and welcome to the American Empire Podcast, Episode 3, This Chaotic Island. Last week we covered how the Spanish began the process of imperialism, and we were introduced somewhat to the process of colonization. Unfortunately, the English, the future British, would claim to be different a fact which they chose to emphasize in their colonial charters, but they were not very different after all. English imperialism is the same phenomena by somewhat different means. Perhaps the English delusion of an empire of liberty separates them, but that's getting ahead of myself. Before getting into all that, we must first superficially understand this chaotic island that gave rise to the North American colonies. The history of England is a story of decentralizing powers converging once more to create the nation-state of Britain. It is because of this trajectory that the American colonies gained some of its most valued attributes and contributed heavily to its economic history, which in turn influenced their political and social character. Beginning with the great bloodletting of the nobility during the War of the Roses, which broke the power of the ancient aristocratic warlord class, resulting in a decrease in the number of people who qualified as belonging to that class. But what was the War of the Roses? Basically, it was a war of royal succession between the Plantagenets and the Lancasters, to noble families who had claim to the throne. The war had multiple phases, but took 30 years to be resolved, from May 1455 to August 1485. It would only be seven years later that Columbus landed on the Bahamas. Power was also fractured by a disease. Plague decimated the European population and would upend the stifling power of trade guilds. By 1350, the Black Plague had killed millions of people, possibly half of the population of the known world. Plagues would periodically rip through London, roughly every 20 to 30 years, killing about 20% of London's population each time. Plague also invited religious zealotry. Anti-clericalism, the belief that the church has gone astray and indulged material goods, became commonplace, and that this had provoked the wrath of God. But let's just hold that thought for a moment, and I will return to the issue of the church. The large death toll of the plague consequently led to labor scarcity. The tight protective trade guilds which protected knowledge of certain skills were by necessity forced to let in lower-borns into their fold. Joseph Byrne describes guilds as highly conservative, restricting entry to reduce competition, setting prices high and wages low to support their masters. They kept their own records and held their own courts to enforce their contracts or to punish statutory infractions. End quote. 
but the labor scarcity was to change things. Initially, it increased the capacity of journeymen to leverage for better conditions and entry into these guilds. They were men who were no longer apprentices, but not yet masters. They created brotherhoods to create labour monopolies in London. These entities were highly illegal though, and were broken accordingly by the Crown. However, it is an early instance of collective action. Although these brotherhoods were broken, the impetus that created them had not gone away. Guilds were getting weaker and weaker, their monopolies on certain trades were becoming inefficient. Masters desperately sought apprentices from outside urban centres and then from outside their country to diffuse the likelihood of brotherhoods being formed again, a trend that was practiced well into the 1600s. Urban populations were to swell from this practice, yet other factors were also to play a role in increasing the size of urban populations. Industry was developing and the guild system began to collapse under the weight of its own conservative traditions. Demographic transformations led, by necessity, the lower-born commoners to create their own wealth separate from the privileges of the noble aristocracy. This was done by pooling capital together, creating joint stock companies, which thus mitigated the risk of investing in ventures, and where successful, it could yield a high return on investment. These innovations in capital investment were the early seedlings of modern-day capitalism, but let's just put a pin on that. I'll return to it in just a moment. These developments were damaging to the aristocracy in the long term, but not a fatal blow. These demographic transitions played out slowly, beginning in the 14th century, and continuing uninterrupted all the way to the American Revolution, and onwards, in a form of primitive accumulation of capital, which the Americans would mimic towards the American Indians as they manifest destiny their way westward, the parliaments of the Old World began to pass enclosure acts. This too was a process of breaking power, the power of the self-sufficient human farmer. These acts basically privatized large tracts of common land, converting them to private property for an individual. Instead of a feudal lord protecting the peasants who lived on the common land, English gentlemen would now own the land as free holdings and employ a handful of farmers to tend the fields, whilst evicting the families they did not need. The putting out system came to replace subsistence farming, and a profitable expansion into wool production came to be used as a pretext to enclose land further. The weavers of England were becoming increasingly influential as their products were in high demand. Thus, progressively, fences were put up, land was marked as earned, and the countryside was littered by sheep replacing the great English yeoman farmer. This process decimated the rural population, forcing them to move into urban centres to work as labourers. This, once more, increased the size of urban centres, creating a mass urban poor that was a powder keg of social unrest. Poor laws were passed to ameliorate their position, but 
it came with the added effect of criminalizing what was once normal and legal behavior. Many dreamed of returning to their farms. Others wished to become part of the landed gentry, if not aristocratic, perhaps oligarchic. A solution to the demographic problem was to entice the population to move to the Americas, or, as some viewed it, to start a life anew, away from the decay and corruption of the British Isles. But, now I'm getting ahead of myself, we are not done yet. Power resides in many institutions. It was fractured once more by Henry VIII, breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. No longer did the people of the British Isles have to pay a tithe, a virtual tax to Rome. The domain of the spirit and the purse, so to speak, was liberated from the control of the morally corrupt Roman clergy. Henry formed the Church of England, and in the process invited new ideas of Christian worship. Blowback, the unintentional consequences of a pursued policy, would have been a useful concept for Henry to familiarize himself with. In the short term, the English church caused more grief in the British Isles than a net good. Anglicanism, as the new faith became known, did not resolve the problems of corrupt popery. Rather, it transplanted the corruption under the auspices of the English crown. Social unrest was precipitated by the full force of the Reformation. Centers of power and the traditional institutions that held the prevailing social relations together were, in a word, disintegrating as the world moved towards the so-called modern era. In the spiritual, material, and familial realms, Factions and counterfactions were being formed in order to gain dominance and establish stability back within the British Isles. Time now to re-establish some coherent threads from this chaos. England would pursue a circuitous course before turning west, a remarkably delayed course of action for a nation so well placed to explore the Atlantic Ocean. The remaining aristocratic lords were left with large damaged estates after the War of the Roses. Their revenues were severely depleted, yet they still retained their noble privileges. Families diversified their wealth sources by marrying into the urban oligarchy, the newly wealthy merchant and manufacturing elite. Over time, the minutia of demographic change reinvented the upper echelons of British society. The class compromise of the aristocracy and the oligarchy is a unique feature of the British state, and it is perhaps why it did not experience a revolution equivalent to the French. Oligarchic interest lay in gaining increasing political authority to protect their commercial interests. The diminished power of the aristocracy allowed the priorities of the government to be guided by the oligarchs, this, in turn, was true for the American colonies. A great number of American founding fathers were mostly wealthy plantation owners, the oligarchs of America. In forming the Constitution, they borrowed heavily from the existing British parliamentary system. It is important not to overstate the War of the Roses, but it set in motion a series of familial maneuverings which elevated the status and power of the emerging merchant class 
and prolong the power and wealth of the aristocratic class. Now then, to the church and Henry VIII, who shook the snow globe some more. By breaking the basis of feudal society, by dissolving monasteries and abolishing certain papal titles, Henry severely diminished the influence of religious lords in Parliament. Before Henry made his reforms, the lords spiritual, the monks, bishops, abbots, cardinals, and the lords temporal, the men of the nobility, the dukes, viscounts, and barons, mostly shared power in the House of Lords. It is like the US equivalent of the Senate, except a bit more ancient and convoluted. After Henry's reforms, there was a power imbalance in the House of Lords, where there were only 26 lords spiritual and 460 lords temporal. It is these same lords temporal who were slowly increasingly linked to the oligarchs of Britain. Religion, in turn, became highly individualized. Many influences from continental Europe reached across the aisle. Lutheran and Calvinist Christian Reformation thought was on the rise, with the latter taking hold in Henry's new Church of England. Under Elizabeth I, Bishop Edmund Grindle of London was sympathetic to Calvinist doctrines and helped spread it. In the context of the great plagues ripping through towns, Bishop Grindle proposed that worship did not have to take place in large congregations. Clever, he had social distancing in mind. The belief of gaining salvation of God from faith alone without the need of the church began to take hold. Religious tensions began to be heightened. Puritans were divided. Some believed that the reforms to the Anglican Church were good enough, believing that they had removed the remaining relics of popery, but other Puritans believed that the reforms had not gone far enough. A form of national unity had never been so far. By the time the Puritans leave for the Americas, religious practice could be broadly placed into three factions the old Catholics, the moderate Anglicans, and the hardline Puritans. Again, broadly defined, as Arthur Tyndall Hart put it in his text, The Country Clergy, quote, It has been estimated that, at the end of Elizabeth's reign, about 2% of the population was ardently Puritan, 5% were Roman Catholic, 18% were zealous followers of the Anglican Church. 75% were dull peasants who were utterly indifferent to any form of church and government, provided that it did not interfere too drastically with their own customs and superstitions. A traveller through the English countryside may have not noticed the religious divide. However, once they reached urban centres, they would have found a place that was clearly Protestant of some variation. Queen Elizabeth made sure of it, through the act of uniformity. Such spiritual discord, however, would synchronize well with the emerging merchant class. The passing of Elizabeth brings us neatly to the establishment of the North American colonies. The future British Empire was to use a light hand in the management of their colonies. Often the mainland colonies were a convenient place to banish political troublemakers, religious zealots, and convicts 
to mitigate the social unrest in urban centres. It was also a place where Englishmen could make a new life for themselves, where back in their homeland there was little opportunity. The American colonists got used to such treatment. The indifference from their homeland often meant that they could experiment with unique forms of government. This light hand led to many atrocities too, and would bite Britain back during the Revolutionary Era. However, the light hand, or sultry neglect, as A.G. Hopkins put it, also allowed for new forms of extracting wealth from the Americas and shipping it back to Britain. This influx of wealth and evolving social relations in Britain allowed for the development of capitalism. Next week, I'll discuss the early ventures into North America by the English, the mix of joint stock companies paying for the journeys, and I will introduce Disney's favourite character, Pocahontas. Now, I'll introduce the guy with the most boring name ever, John Smith, who himself was not boring, and is a part of the perturbed history and founding of Jamestown. <laughs>